the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Monday, January 24th, 2022. As opposed to nearly every other conservative with a microphone, <clears throat> I'm not going to be playing ep- excerpts from Bill Maher's show Friday night, genuflecting to how great his positions and Barry Weiss's positions on COVID and crime are and how it shows we are winning. After a while of this, it becomes exhausting to point out what too few seem to be able to do, which is to say your complaints about the Republican Party make no sense. Your rigid attraction to the Democratic Party makes no sense. And the only way to make either one of them make sense is to disregard everything you say on public policy as making so much sense, getting so much applause, giving so much sucker to conservative sensibilities while putting liberal Democrats at ill ease. In other words, if you want us to take you seriously on what you say 70 percent of the time on absurd liberal left policy, you cannot expect us to take you seriously when you continue to lambast the party that makes the case you make some 70 percent of that time while having us adhere to the party you are criticizing, all the while receiving equal applause for that criticism. The problem, in other words, you say is X policy. The problem, you say, is Y policy. The Republican Party agrees with you on X and Y. The Democratic Party party disagrees with you vehemently on X and Y. So you support the party that disagrees with you and you reserve your contempt for the party that agrees with you. As you say, quote, all of this is an effort to save the Democratic Party and keep Republicans out of office, close quote. You speak as a loving critic, but the love is disoriented, as is the hate. Friday's show with Bill Maher was a study in cognitive dissonance. He and his liberal guest, Barry Weiss, condemned two main issues, planks, platforms, rigidities in our public policy, and they both continue to do so for some time, A, the COVID restrictions and absurdities and be the rising violent crime Democrats have turned a cold shoulder to in deference to left wing nostrums such as defunding and reimagining the police. Now, before I circle back, it's important to lay the predicate, which was equally absurd, driving the incongruence of these conclusions. Prior to Barry Weiss joining Bill Maher, Maher hosted a professor from Yale. Clearly not a political science professor, but given today's standards in political science, it may not have mattered much. The professor from Yale lamented how extreme the Republican Party was because, wait for it, he said 10 candidates running for secretary of state in the Republican Party believe Donald Trump won the 2020 election. When I heard that, I had to pause. That would mean an entire party or movement is extreme by this professor's lights because 20 percent of the party's candidates for secondary and tertiary state office think there were shenanigans in 2020. 
A party is now extreme because only 80 percent of it is okay at the secondary and tertiary levels with nary an indictment, by the way, of primary levels. That is to say, no gubernatorial candidates came to this professor's mind. But it's not even 20 percent. These candidates are running in a primary. And in at least two of the 10 cases, they are in the same state with two other opponents. So it's not even 20 percent of the party. But then, again, in that very same interview, mind you, several sentences later, so that the earlier datum could be forgotten in the heat of a rapid-fire interview, Bill Maher made the point that the Republican Party was in pretty good shape given that 10 congressmen voted to impeach Donald Trump. So just what is it? Is 10 a good number for you when they are on your side, or is it an irredeemably bad number when it is not? In a country of 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump, 10 seems awfully meager to hang your hat on very much. Of course, unaddressed throughout the entire episode was the point that most Democrats and many with large names and purchase had done in 2016 precisely what is being denounced against Republicans right now for raising. It is known as the big lie, doubting the legitimacy of the president's election. This is the terror from the Yale professor and Bill Maher that there are Republicans who doubt Joe Biden's legitimacy. Never mind, as I say, that when it was Donald Trump's presidency, the big lie was the big truth. Trump was fraudulently elected and thus illegitimate. Nancy Pelosi said so multiple times and continued to, even tweeting as much. Hillary Clinton said so and continues to. And so, too, a former president whose entire post-presidential career has been senator, centered on the monitoring of elections, Jimmy Carter. He said so more than once. Donald Trump, illegitimate. It's not what aboutism. It's that it's awfully hard to take this too seriously when you yourselves committed the same venality. And, oh, by the way, we brushed it off as sore loserism on our side and not much more. You didn't hear us invent the phrase big lie. Or defend a big truth. And in any case, to no effect, whatever, except in a tilt to the Democrats. They unsheathed the weapon of impeachment against Donald Trump with it twice. Republicans have no inclination to do so, knowing the processes of democracy and the sanctity of the republic try to keep dangerous toys out of the hands of little boys. But we're not the party of the little boys. Just so, Douglas Murray writes this weekend, quote, since 2016, the American left has desperately cut itself off from reality. Its unwillingness to concede that Donald Trump won the election precluded the Democrats from being able to consider why their candidate lost. But the American right is equal capable, equally capable of deluding itself, he continues. In fact, with Biden in the White House, it is now as much a problem for the American right as it was for the left during the Trump years. Close quote. I don't think it's true. Nor is that the problem. The problem is it's hard to take the current complaint seriously when nobody thought they were serious when the same charges were weaponized against Donald Trump and his supporters. You inject frivolousness into a serious body politic. You can't expect that body politic to come out of its anesthesia on your timeline just because it's convenient for you now, also known as political, political expedience or demagoguery. So Bill Maher then takes leave with Barry Weiss to remonstrate against rising crime as a result of defunding the police and COVID asininities as a result of the entirety of the Democratic Party. Public safety, 
public health, individual rights, individual freedoms. Few things could be more consequential or the point of political science and thus political alignment and parties. Sure, just saying keep Donald Trump or keep the Republicans out of office is an easy applause line. But because of what? Especially after telling us, without saying the dangerous to your profession shibboleths, that you are in agreement with what the Republican Party has been saying for years and opposed to what the Democratic Party has been saying and doing for equally long. So excuse me for not taking any of this very seriously or thinking it's groundbreaking. Just remember, Bill Maher has donated over $1 million to the Democratic Party. I'm actually not sure I know a Republican who has done the same for the Republicans. And in that donating, he endowed the ideology and the policies he gets cheered for opposing. Barry Weiss is famous for one thing, and that's finding intolerable the censorship and cancellation ethic at the New York Times. Again, one party has stood against such attacks on civil liberties, the Republican Party. One has coddled, endowed, and supported it. The Republican. And let's remember all this being done at the New York Times, not the Washington Times. But she'll continue to be a liberal Democrat. Thank you very much. Kind of like trying to understand why you're the only one not slurring your speech or shouting at an Irish bar on St. Patrick's Day. At one point on Friday, Bill Maher complimented San Francisco Mayor London Breed for calling BS on the policies that have led to less policing in her city. He applauded her for having called it out. But forgotten is that Mayor Breed is trying to fly from the very nest she herself fouled. A whole 18 months ago, for those of us that don't think history constitutes only what was said today, Mayor Breed cut $120 million from the city's police in an effort to satisfy the BLM movement. Meanwhile, The ire that 800 or so people shut down the operations of the House of Representatives for eight hours on January 6th is of prime and comminatory importance while the sitting vice president helped raise funds for those who violently attacked cities like San Francisco and its law enforcement apparatuses for days and months on end. Not in the name of democracy or preserving our republic, but in the name of an avowedly admittedly, unapologetically Marxist movement. Our vice president helped them, and other cities went down too. And it wasn't eight hours, and it wasn't 800 people. It was months, and it was everywhere. And it was 14,000 arrests and 30 deaths. And it led to exactly what Republicans were saying then and saying now. It est, you will get more violence and more death. And you are getting the same plus suicide and depression and learning deficits and expenses and upside down employment problems for listening to the Democrats and ignoring the Republicans warnings on the very same thing you condemn the Democrats for believing while maintaining the Democratic Party is the important party to support. Part of this could be that a few people waking up to their new opinions about crime and covid were not familiar with the conservative critique only that it was white supremacist and anti-science because that's what you were told. It was, of course, neither. But in any event, that would not be true and could not be true of Barry Weiss or Bill Maher. Mr. Murray says what he wrote above because Republicans, he thinks, make it uncomfortable for liberals to join us. 
especially, as he writes, because of our positions on abortion, no-fault divorce, and the pill. I could be out of step. I truly could be. But I can't tell you the last time I heard a conservative say anything about the latter two issues. Well, we ask, is it the social issues, after all, that keep liberals from joining our side? I don't know. Seems to me crime and COVID have become the main social issues of our time. Social issues being everything not fiscal or foreign policy. Again, public safety, public health, and individual freedom freedom being just about in not actuality, the if not in actuality, the first and primary orders of business for politics, especially in a democracy or a republic. It is not only the first order of business here, per the Federalist Papers, as Alexander Hamilton put it, the pres- preservation of the public peace being the first order of government. The very first indictment against King George in our Declaration of Independence was his refusal to assent to laws, quote, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good, close quote, about which one could identify COVID lockdowns and mitigation efforts as well as crime. It's not that we've made ourselves uncomfortable for liberals. It's that liberals are denying reality. There's a phrase for this, historical negationism, and it doesn't have a very good pedigree. It was postulated as the explanation or excuse for those who have lived under tyranny and still experience the trauma of it leading to their denials of reality. It is, as its inventor put it, quote, forged through the skillful organization of forgetting, close quote. Well, right there, and just once more, we are going through that now with the cancel culture, with the 1619 Project, with censorship, with alternative credentialed scientific views being silenced and shamed, and right here, just once more, we are supposed to applaud those who subject themselves to work for and endow it, while at the same time repeating the thoughts of the sane. With, of course, nothing said about the mayor of a big city, a bigger one, who just voted to give voting rights to non-citizens. Of course, no mention. He's a Democrat. For you see, it is we Republicans who are violating the norms of sanctity of elections and the citizens' rights to vote, also known as the norms or privileges of citizenship. But when you have already broken our sovereignty and the ability to protect it physically, How can you muster indignation over the evisceration of citizenship when it comes to elections? I'll tell you how, by ignoring it and blaming the Republicans anyway. As usual, Leo Strauss got it right. He put it that according to our social science today, we can be or become wise in all things of secondary importance, but we have to be resigned to utter ignorance in the most important respects. In ordinary life, we understand by a sane man, a man who knows what he is doing, a man who knows why he is doing what he does. If we cannot have any knowledge regarding the ultimate principles of our choices, that is to say, regarding their soundness or unsoundness, we are in the position of men who are sane and sober when they are engaged in trivialities and gamble like madmen when confronted with serious issues. It's retail sanity and wholesale madness. Close quote. It's not real time with Bill Maher or anything else. It's retail sanity and wholesale madness. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studio, 602-508-0960. Having said that, uh, it's probably worth uh, putting in a, a good word for all our police officers uh, and law enforcement officers out there, <clears throat> especially in light of the New York of the New York uh, Police Department loss over the weekend. Uh, police officer was uh, shot dead. Another one shot and sent to the hospital by um, a 47-year-old man who was, yes, out on probation at the time he killed the cop and shot the cop's partner. Out on probation. Um, he had a pretty good rap sheet, as they say, 2000, let's see, yes, uh, 2003 felony narcotics conviction in New York City, several prior arrests, including unlawful possession of a weapon, assaulting a police officer, two arrests for felony drug charges, a misdemeanor narcotics charge. And so where we are with the media and the um, and, and the news commentary on this is that, and by the way, as the liberal congressman from New York said it on Bill Maher's show on Friday, uh, we have to crack down on illegal guns. Illegal guns. Okay, the gun that was used by this 47-year-old who was out on probation uh, was held illegally, and it was illegally um, put together. It was an illegal gun. It was an illegally constructed gun that he held illegally. Now, tell me what law you want to pass that would have prevented this. Tell me the law. You can't anymore. Then you can tell me the law you would pass against SUVs to have saved six lives in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Waukesha, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Which, by the way, six lives, six lives lost. Christmas, Wisconsin. How much are you hearing about it? How much have you heard about it? Is there any demand to say those victims' names? Will there be any demand to speak of the police who were shot in New York City by this 47-year-old who shouldn't have been on probation and should not have had the weapons he had, but for the fact that the police had already been told not to investigate and not to have the system in place that the new mayor of New York City put in place today because Bill de Blasio removed it in demand of Black Lives Matter. Okay. Okay. And um, you wonder why I keep invoking Winston Churchill's claim to Franklin Roosevelt when talking about what they should name World War II, the unnecessary war, because it didn't have to happen, because it was preventable, but for sick thinking. I'm Seth. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us John Dombrowski. He is the president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com. He brings us our culture and economy update every day at this time. And he has his own show on Saturdays right here, 960, The Word on Wealth, every Saturday at 7 a.m. Happy Monday, John. Start of the new week with you. A little volatility yeah. today. I was listening to the radio this morning, hearing about how uh, terribly the uh, markets were doing, and I said, got to hear what J.D. says. And now I see that they all kind of ended up, and now i got to see what J.D. says. <laughs> well, I'll be talking a little bit more about this on my show on Saturday morning, too, because it was a, a really an interesting day for the market, uh, if, if, if you're a person that watches this and has the stomach for it, of course, because it was a pretty uh, volatile day today. We saw the markets op- open sharply lower. But then uh, we saw a major uh, change, and, and it, it got worse, progressively worse early on. And at one point, the Dow was down over 1,100 points today, and uh, that's pretty severe. And uh, But if you're right, it did close back positive. The NASDAQ was down almost 5% in one day. You know, we may think that's a bad year, but that's in one day of trading. But, again, it completely reversed and closed actually higher on the day. So, you know, we look at these things, uh, Seth, and we would get worried about them, of course, right? If you're invested in the markets, uh, it's not fun to watch the value of your accounts go down. But just as quickly as we saw them dropping, we saw an immediate reversal uh, towards the end of the day of trading. And within that last hour of trading, uh, gaining back all of those losses on the day and actually turning positive. Now, that doesn't help the past week, when we saw the markets down over the last five, six days in a row. Uh, but it does start to signal that it's, you know, we may be seeing a consolidation here and forming a bottom on this. So for those out there who are thinking they've got to get out, uh, I just caution people to make sure they make a good educated decision. Um, because if you sell at a bottom, oftentimes you miss that snap back as we've seen today what a what a reversal we have is that, is that how a day like today ends the way it does things fall so low people say oh good time to buy and then they put those purchases in before day's end and it raises the the markets everywhere is that kind of how it happens that's pretty much what happens right they it gets to a certain point to where there are more buyers all of a sudden than sellers and if you look even at what we call the futures this is the or the after hours trading right now uh, the markets are indicating, at least t- right now, that even tomorrow there'll be more buying at the open than selling, and the markets at this moment in time look like they'll open higher again tomorrow morning. How much do you think the jobs recession is having as an effect on this sort of thing? We were looking at an article yeah. over at Issues and Insights asking if the jobs, the COVID jobs recession is about to get worse. One one could look at that a couple different ways, of course. But how much is that jobs problem related to the stock market? Well, it affects all all companies out there that yeah. have employees, yeah. especially now when we're we're looking for. Uh, you know, there's an estimated. I think there's over 10 million jobs that are available. I think nationwide. That's right. And and there are ha- half you know, that half many of, say they aren't working. Right. Half yeah. of that yeah. say that they're looking for yeah. jobs but yeah. can't find a job. Yeah. It makes no sense. And we've talked about the subsidies that uh, obviously are still being paid out there and, and the increase in some of the benefits uh, during COVID-19 that, that people are still collecting. Uh, and it's hard to wean people off of free things, Seth, as we all know. Um, so it's going to be difficult to get these people back to work. And so companies who are looking for 
uh, workers, if they're if they're unable to get them, it's harder for them to grow, right? It's, if I've got a company that's growing uh, at a fast pace and I need to hire people in order to continue on that ramp uh, rate, then it's, it's, if I can't find the employees, then I can't grow. So uh, it's, it's difficult. So does it affect? Yes, it certainly will have an effect on companies. Some others, uh, it may not affect as much because of innovation with software and uh, the ability to replace, actually, the labor force in some cases due to some of the technology that we have out there. But overall, it affects small businesses dramatically when you can't hire workers and companies have to maybe stay open a little bit less than what they normally would, which means it cuts into their bottom line. And when we see the economic engine of this country stalled, even in light of the president talking about record job growth, we have to understand that those jobs that have been added were jobs that existed actually before the pandemic, right? These are jobs that have been recovered. It's not a net positive here. Right. These are not new jobs that are being created. These are just get back to work type of jobs. Yeah, you're exactly right, Seth. And I think that's that's not what's being touted by no. the administration no. right now. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, if I were them, I wouldn't tout it either. <laughs> right. Thank you, J.D. Good start for the week. You bet. Check out our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FIN recipient and investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Nice hit, John. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Seth. You Bye-bye. betcha. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, brought to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. Uh, I was just having a uh, little bit of a discussion with Bill uh, during the break. We were talking about uh, L.A. and the Buccaneers. Uh, anyway, um, all praise to L.A., I guess. Is that the end of Brady, you think? Has he, got another, does he have another season in him? He can't possibly, can he? <laughs> Don't get us started on sports, okay? <laughs> All right, what should we do? Supreme Court, constitutional law? You want to go there? Okay. This will be the case to watch. This will be, I think, a major case to watch. The Supreme Court agreed to take a case on affirmative action racial preferences involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The cases by Asian students against both institutions have been consolidated, and uh, it's called Students for Fair Admission versus University of North Carolina at all. Harvard is the at all. Um, They may change the name, but uh, you will see much talk about this case. Uh, It has the potential to be as big a case as, oh, What's probably the most famous case on this is called Bakke. And I remember growing up in the 1970s, it was named after Alan Bakke, Bakke versus UC Regents Medical School at uh, Davis, UC Davis, right? And, and, and a lot of us grew up in the 70s um, knowing the name Bakke, not knowing much about the student, just knowing that it came to represent a form of uh, – Racial discrimination in, in that case, medical school admissions. Uh, and, and you don't really get cases with names that freeze themselves in time like that anymore. There's, there's a handful, Brown, Rowe, 
is there one after that that I'm that I'm missing after Baki? You you just don't hear that as much anymore. Perhaps because the clarity about them isn't there. Perhaps because the reporting has changed. Perhaps become we've become very used to lurches and uh, very very used to concurring opinions where you have to cobble together. Uh, barely thin majorities on various parts of the case, which was true of Baki. You can't just cite the whole darn case. You have to talk about what section. But in any event, you have these Asian students from Harvard and North Carolina saying they have uh, gone up against college admissions schemes that have the effect of keeping them out of college where where they would have otherwise got in if they were of a different race, if they were of a different race. Um, And the justification that Harvard and UNC have put together based on that old Bakke case is they are engaging in this practice. They are engaging in this race preference practice for the purpose of one of the few things Justice Powell and Bakke said you could do this for, and that is to preserve or create diversity in the campus setting. Diversity. Diversity. This is what is going to be litigated heavily. And it's going to be litigated in part because as one of the briefs the National Association of Scholars points out, The last thing colleges these days are engaging in is actual diversity. What they are engaging in is re-segregation. The National Association Scholars itself completed a comprehensive study at 173 schools, including the Ivies. And it found that in addition to a host of racially identified student centers, academic programs, counseling and mentorship services. Think about that. Think about that. Racially identified counseling and mentorship services. Think about that. Forty three percent of colleges offer segregated residence to students of different races. Forty six percent offer segregated orientation programs And 72% sponsor segregated graduation ceremonies. Think about that. When when we talk about our our goals of desegregation, when we talk about how much we were pleased with, you know, the Brown decision or the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or uh, what Martin Luther King uh, stood for as we talked about Uh, I guess exactly a week ago today at some great length. When you talk about that, you're talking, as I am, as if we don't quite get it anymore. We're no longer au courant. Segregation is no longer the goal. It stopped being the goal somewhere in the late 80s. It's just that law and social science didn't openly admit it. Quietly and then more steadily and more proudly, loudly, segregation on college campuses became more and more the norm. This is how and why at ASU you can have two students believing it's okay to throw white students out of a multicultural center. What would have given them 
the uh, the cat the catalyst for that? What would have impetized their notion that it's okay to segregate by race or resegregate by race if colleges hadn't been doing this for going on? I don't know. Um, Almost almost 30 years now, almost 30 years now. I'll give you those numbers again. 43% of our top colleges offer, offer segregated residence to students of different races. Think about that. 46% offer segregated orientation programs. About the last thing you'd want in segregation, isn't it? Orientation programs. And, of course, 72% sponsor segregated graduation Ceremonies. I sometimes wonder about these graduation ceremonies. If you go as a parent, a grandparent, or an older friend and you see some of these things, would you think that 1964 never happened? You might. You might very well think that. Tim's in Peoria. Hi, Tim. Oh, Seth Leeson. <laughs> you have opened it up, sir. <laughs> so I took, I took a break and I didn't call in since, you know, MLK. But here we are again, from Bucky to Plessy to Brown. I love it because you are far more intelligent than I, <laughs> I don't when know. speaking about this case law. And that's just because, well, you're smarter than I. I, I don't know about what? that. I, I just grew up remembering, what's all this thing I hear about Bucky? What's this Bucky thing <laughs> in the 70s? Ugh, yeah. Gaw, right? So, I, you know, I, I saw this come across over the weekend. I thought, oh, the Supreme Court's going to hear something. And I cannot wait. Now, did it happen today? I'm sorry. Did it happen today? I think they officially accepted it today. It might it might have been in the okay. tea leaves over the weekend. Yeah. So I hope that everybody else that understands the SCOTUS or at least follows him is waiting for Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, the silent justice. Oh, 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 do, oh, 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 do let me let you set the table that way as we go to a commercial break and come back on yes. this. Would you please? Yes, d- yes good. Yes, uh, I, I, I'm envisioning a cartoon. Maybe I don't mean to steal your punchline if this is it, but I'm, in, I'm envisioning a cartoon that was sent to me um, about two weeks ago. T- Clarence Thomas saying, hello, Joe Biden. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Tim, don't go away. We'll come right back to you. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tim in Peoria, thank you, sir. You have the microphone, sir. Oh, you are too gracious. He never asks questions, and when he does, people listen. He's like... He's probably he's like E.F. Hutton is what you were going to say. We just cut out a little bit, Tim, right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I tried to make a joke. Uh, Fair enough. So, yeah, here we go. Uh... I cannot wait to hear what Clarence Thomas says. And I think he's going to have a lot of questions. If you remember, because I know you do, he voted against affirmative action. Yeah. Yep. You remember? And that's when he became the Uncle Tom. Yep. And for the listeners of your show, the. Yep, yep. Thomas, you can't get any more black American than Clarence Thomas, only because of his birthplace and the fact that Clarence Thomas is a direct descendant of slaves. Right. He was born in Pinpoint, Georgia. Right. If people don't understand, that's a freed slave colony. In any event, I can't wait to see what happens with Clarence Thomas. Now, when I look at uh, the college admissions process, I want to go back. I want to look at the HBCUs. Uh, if you recall, I went my first uh, college, university was at an HBCU. 
I never saw this issue. In fact, I lived in the dorms for one year, and I wasn't segregated. In fact, my roommate, a good friend of mine now, uh, he was black, as were, well, most of the people on campus, and there were other white people on campus. We weren't segregated. Why college campuses do this, I think it's, it is much to the chagrin of the black students on campus, in my opinion, because if you go to an HBCU and if you are white and attending, you don't have these problems. It's only when you go to the elite. That's right. Where you see That's them right. trying to, what is the word? Um, they try to, it's when you when you do something, oh, virtue signaling. Yeah. yeah. I believe that yeah. the United States has an issue with virtue signaling. And, um, you know, my, myself. No, I agree with you. I have the, at least one black friend. Yeah. No, I agree with you. The line is just a little spotty. That's all, Tim. I I was just going to say, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. My first college roommate was as well. Uh, uh, Actually, I I had two college college roommates at the time because they over-admitted in a little admissions error. So we were three of us. One was uh, Korean-American. One was uh, African-American. So we were we were as about the most multicultural dorm room on the whole campus, I suppose. I, I one one white guy, one African American guy, and one Asian American guy. I don't know how you could have done anything more diverse than that. But that wouldn't be the case today at that same school. That just wouldn't. And it does seem to me, if you are trying to educate people broadly, do you not want them exposed to people of different ethnicities? And wasn't this the justification for these policies in the first place? Well, if it's no longer the justification for these policies of racial preferences in, 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 college, admissions, in college admissions, if it's no longer the purpose, you no longer need the policy. All you're doing is discriminating. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.